0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we just pray that as we go through your word in the book of Acts chapter 3, do you help us to understand what it's saying to us and understand about Jesus and what he has done. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, I like going on holidays, and I'm sure uh, many of you enjoy going on holidays too, especially... Actually, I know you all enjoy going on holidays because I speak to you and you all go on holidays. And as we go on holidays, what do we do? We always go to see the sights, right? We go to the famous places. So I remember when I went to visit my uh, uncle in Zurich, it seems to be like that's my main holiday memory, right? Every... Every sermon is my uncle in Zurich. Anyway, we went to visit my uncle in Zurich. We went to Florence um, to go to this very, very famous museum called the Ufuzi, Ufuzi... Okay, that's it. The gallery, which is supposed to be one of the most famous museums in the world, right? It's got wondrous works of art, amazing architecture, great history... Uh, I don't think my kids actually appreciated it because they just went in there and said, why are there all these naked people here, right? Okay, so, uh, you can see there are lots of naked people. But yet outside the cinema, uh, not cinema, sorry, outside the museum, outside the museum, okay, was, uh, filled with, uh, with, with people begging and, uh, trying to sell you stuff. There were pit pockets. You know, it was just really crowded and rowdy and dirty and uh, filled with uh, squalor. And I think there was a great contrast there between this great museum and, I guess, the the sad sight outside. And in many ways, as we come to Acts chapter 3, that is the contrast that we see as well. Because here, at the great temple in Jerusalem, uh, at the time when Peter and John went there, it wasn't destroyed yet, it was a magnificent structure, But yet outside this great temple, just at the gates, which is called the beautiful gate, because this gate was supposed to be really marvelous, full of splendor, right? Uh, The the historian Josephus actually wrote that this gate, uh, because of its exquisite workmanship, it was made of bronze, far exceeded in value those gates that were plated with silver and set in gold. So this was a really beautiful gate at this great temple. But yet outside of this beauty and majesty, beside this beautiful gate, the poor gathered to beg, and the sick came begging for alms. And there was one particularly sad and tragic person. This was a man that we read about in Acts 3, verse 2, who was crippled from birth. And actually, as you will see later on in Acts 4, he had been crippled for 40 years. That means for 40 years he had not been able to walk, and day after day he was carried to the beautiful gate where he would sit and lie there begging for money. And the path of this crippled man would cross with the two disciples, Peter and John. Peter and John, as we saw last week in the Easter sermon, uh, were the first disciples to go to the tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus, and witness that he had resurrected from the dead. So they had come to the temple, as you see in verse 1, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and they didn't come as tourists, they came to pray, right? They came to the temple to pray, it was very hot probably, the sun was burning down on them, and they come across this poor beggar. Now, look at what Peter says to him. In verse 4, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Now, usually when I come across um, the people selling me tissue paper at the MRT, uh, usually I just give them some money or if I'm really busy or I don't know, I feel not so generous that day I might walk past them. But yet, Peter here uh, doesn't give this poor, poor, tragic man money. But he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Why does he do that? Why does he expect to be able, that he would be able to walk just because he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Well, in the beginning, in chapter 1, as we did the responsive reading, Jesus had said to Peter and to the other disciples, it is not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And last week and the week before, we saw how the Holy Spirit had come across the disciples and how it had empowered them to do these miraculous things in the name of Jesus Christ. So here Peter speaks to the man with total expectation that he would be able to walk. And sure enough he walked, because in verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk he walked with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, at this point, I think that Luke, the writer of Acts, really wants us to know that a great, great miracle had happened. Four times in those verses we are told that he walked. And not only did he walk, but he jumped. And not only did he jump, he was walking and jumping all along from the beautiful gate to Solomon's portico which was outside. So if you see on this map, right, so he was over here in this uh, number 11 and he's walking and jumping around outside in number 12. Now I want us to reflect a bit about the, the event that really happened, right? Because I don't think it's an accident that, that, that Peter healed this particular man or came across this particular man. Because if there was anybody who really was impossible to make walk again, it was this man. It wasn't as if he'd walked before and he stopped walking and he walked again. He had never walked for 40 years. Just think about that for a moment. In modern science, in our even if you had the money of Bill Gates and you never walked in your whole life, modern medicine could not make you walk again. I remember when I was really young, before I was in primary school, I just told my wife this actually, I don't think she knew about this. Before I went to primary school, for a few days, I, I was struck by some really weird virus when I was uh, like about five years old and I couldn't walk. For a couple of days. I just lost all strength in my leg muscles. I had to crawl up the stairs, crawl down the stairs, crawl wherever I went. I think my my parents found it really very embarrassing and very awkward, right? But after a while, I got better. But even then, it took me a week or two before I could actually walk properly. Because the muscles in my legs were still affected. I remember uh, 1998, I tore my ACL in my knee playing soccer. And I I think a few people here have an ACL uh, test as well, it, I had to go for operation, I went to see physiotherapy, uh, I went to the gym and I learned about this thing called proprioception, right, because apparently, you know, after you tear your muscle, not only do you have to develop the muscles in your leg, but you actually have to work on your balance to teach yourself again how to walk and to balance. It took me about six months before I could even start running again. Now, here was a man who had never walked in his whole life. But yet, instantly, he was walking and he was jumping. This is a miracle of the highest degree. And that's why the people in the crowd were filled with amazement and wonder. Now, if it was very clear to the crowd that a miracle happened, The mistake of the crowd was they didn't know the source of the miracle and the power that this man was healed. Because it says there that Peter rebuked the crowd afterwards. In verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant, Jesus. Now, if the crowd correctly recognized that a miracle had been done. They incorrectly put the source at Peter and John. They were staring at Peter and John, and Peter says, don't stare at us, look to God. Look to Jesus, stare at Jesus, stare at God instead. Because what had happened didn't come about through the power in Peter." or John, but came through Jesus Christ, through God, to them by the Holy Spirit. You see, in the book of um, of Acts, these miracles are not just miracles for the sake of entertainment, but they are signs, signs pointing to Jesus Christ. In fact, this had happened in a way that it reminded people of exactly what Jesus had done in the past. See, look at Luke chapter 5, which is like uh, the book of Acts chapter 1, right, of volume 1. Jesus had done the very same thing. In verse 24 of chapter 5 of Luke, he said, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, he took what had he been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Look at what it says here in John chapter five, because in John chapter five, Jesus did the very same thing in Jerusalem. Probably some of the people who had seen this healing at the beautiful gate had witnessed what had happened when Jesus healed near the sheep gate at the pool. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, picked up his mat and walked. So what is happening here is that Jesus continues to work through Peter, through the Holy Spirit. So that's why Peter says to the men of Israel, why are you surprised? Because if it's the same God who worked through Jesus and who is now working through the apostles by the Holy Spirit, then God should be able to do these things because He's done it before. In fact, what he says there, if you look up here on the slide, right, is that God gave glory to Jesus because Jesus is his servant. Now, this should not surprise the Jews then. Because if Jesus is God's servant and God is glorifying Him, then the power of God should not surprise the Israelites. Because they've seen Jesus do these things. They've seen God do great miracles in the past when He saved them out of Egypt, when He saved them through a series of miracles. They should not be surprised. But what is surprising then is how, how God's people treated Jesus. Because in verse 13, even though God had glorified His servant Jesus by the means of these signs, what did the Jews do against Jesus? In verse 13, you handed Him over to be killed And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, we can see that there's a great contrast here, right? Three times, it is made very clear by Peter, it is by the faith in the name of Jesus that this man whom you see and know has been made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given him this complete healing, as you can all see. So it is through Jesus that this great miracle has happened. But, The contrast is, God's people, the Israelites, killed, rejected, and disowned God's servant. And how they do it is very powerfully communicated by Peter. The first thing is, they killed and disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. So first of all, you killed an innocent man. A neutral party, Herod, had said he was innocent, but yet you killed him. Secondly, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. So not only was he innocent by the objective standard of Herod, but by God's holy standard, he was holy and righteous, but yet you killed him. But what was worse is, in killing the holy and righteous one, you acquitted a murderer. How bad is that? Right? Not only do you kill the innocent person, but you acquit the murderer at the same time. And on top of that, in verse 15, you killed the author of life. You killed the one who was not just a human being, but the one who actually gives and brings and sustains life. It is almost as if in these three verses... Peter is condemning them over and over again. You killed an innocent man. You killed a holy and righteous one by God's standard. You killed the author of life, the one who brings life itself. You killed the holy one of God, but acquitted a murderer. Now, it was driving home the total depravity and the absolute wickedness and evil of God's people. But that makes what Jesus And God says, even more remarkable after this, right? Because after all these things that they had done wrong, what does God have in store for God's people? Well, He goes on to speak in verse 15. Sorry, verse 16. Oh, sorry, at the end there, sorry. Okay, so they've killed this person. They've killed the Holy One. But instead of actually being condemned, they are given the opportunity to repent. In verse 17, it says, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what He had foretold through all the prophets saying that His Messiah would suffer. Repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that He may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive Him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. Now, isn't this amazing? Because God... God's servant, God's son, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, had been murdered by his own people. But God says that he's giving them a second chance. He says to them, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Now the word there in verse 19, right, your sins may be wiped out, literally is the word for erase or to be obliterated. It is like the picture of, um, you know, in the olden days, uh, where before you have computers and, and LCD projectors, right? You used to have whiteboards, and then before that you used to have, uh, blackboards and chalks, right? So I always remember when I was in school, in the good old days, my teacher, when I was falling asleep, used to throw the chalk at me, okay? So I don't, I don't know whether you all remember that now. So I used to get pelted all the time. But, but because I was talking to my friends and I wasn't paying attention, the worst thing is, when after the teacher had written something on the, on the blackboard, because, you know, the blackboard's not very big, right? They'll wipe it off. And then I'll be like, what, 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 what did they write? I, I missed it. I was supposed to copy it down, but I was so busy talking. And then now I don't know what it is anymore. Well, that's what the picture is here. God says that he's giving his people who did all these terrible things the opportunity to have their sins wiped off like a blackboard or a whiteboard you you wipe off everything and you can't see it anymore the sins are completely obliterated and erased now because of that it says that when your sins are wiped out you have times of refreshing that come from the lord now what is the the I guess, the worst sin that you've done against someone that you've been forgiven for? Just think for a moment. What's the worst sin that you've done against somebody that someone has actually forgiven you for? That not only did they say they forgave you, but they really forgave you. In a sense that they wiped out or erased from their mind. Uh, Or if I think about myself, maybe... The worst thing that someone has forgiven me for is being late for appointments or you know forgetting to meet up with somebody or, or or someone's forgiven me something that I might have said out of turn but imagine killing someone's son killing the author of life God himself killing the holy and righteous one and acquitting a murderer now that seems unforgivable but yet God says to his people I'm willing to erase that and by erasing that so that you may have times of refreshment. Now that's what it feels like when you are forgiven. When you are forgiven, you feel this great weight lifting off your shoulder, this peace, this, this refreshing feeling. That's how I felt when I first became a Christian. After I was convicted of my sin from the Bible, I recognized I had to run to Jesus and the cross because I felt this weight, great weight of sin on me. God is angry with me. I've done something wrong against God. But by knowing the forgiveness of God, that weight is taken from me, I have times of refreshment. So I remember when I when I was a father and my kids were much younger, I used to read to my kids The Pilgrim's Progress, right? And if you look at this picture, in The Pilgrim's Progress, this very, very famous Christian novel, the pilgrim is always pictured as having this great weight On his shoulder, right the weight of his sin, his conscious realization of all the wrongs that he's done. And he's always weighed down and burdened by it throughout the comic that I used to read to my kids. But when he goes to the cross, that burden is lifted off his shoulder. Because he realizes that he is no longer carrying this burden of sin. It has been erased, it has been removed, it has been taken away from him. And that is the offer that God was giving through Peter to his people. But it's not just only that. Because if you look at the passage, God promises that if they come back to him, not only will their sins be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, but that God would send Jesus, the Messiah, to them again to restore everything in the future to bring everything back the way it would be. Now, in order for them to receive this forgiveness, to be restored once again to God, they must do only two things. The two things are the two commands, or the two verbs which are imperatives, in the whole section which is in verse 19. Repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God. Now this word repent is a very important word, I think, in our times today. I think it's very misunderstood because I come across some people who misunderstand what repent means. Because in some of the prosperity gospel churches, they, they don't really understand what repent means. I remember listening to Joseph Prince on a CD and he was saying, that repentance in the Bible is not the idea of repentance that we understand it. He used the example of the lost coin and the lost sheep to say that repentance in the Bible just means being yourself so that God will pick you up like the lost coin, save you like the lost sheep, and put you on His shoulders. But I was thinking, the lost sheep, the lost coin is part of a trilogy of, of lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in the parable of the lost son, which is in the book of Luke, again, which is Acts, volume 1, it says in verse 17, when the lost son came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father i've sinned against heaven and against you and i am no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired men so he got up and went to his father this is what repentance is coming to your senses confessing your sin recognizing your wrong and turning back away from wickedness now that's exactly what verse 24 and 26 say in acts chapter 3 because it says that jesus is like the prophet is like the the blessing promised to abraham and he will only bless you in verse 26 by turning each of you from your wicked ways let's look at it properly in verse 24 to 26 indeed beginning with samuel all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days that you are the heirs of the prophets and of the covenant god made with your fathers he said to abraham Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up His servant, He sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. That is what repentance means. If you look at any dictionary of Greek language, that's what repent means. It literally means changing your purpose in life, changing your mind, changing your direction. So repentance is the first response that we must give before we come to God to receive forgiveness. There can be no coming to God without repentance. There are Christians today who somehow think that without turning away from their wickedness, that they are still receiving God's forgiveness. They still continue in their wickedness. They still continue with their sexual sin. They still continue with idolatry. They still continue with infidelity in marriages. They still continue in different ways that I know of. I I see these people. I meet these people. They somehow think that they can continue in their wicked ways without repenting. And somehow they are still saved by Jesus. But here it's very clear that you must repent before you are saved. But repentance is just the first step, right? Because the second step is to turn away from your wickedness and turn to God. That's what it says there very clearly. Repent then and turn to God. See, it's not enough to just repent of my wickedness. I need to turn away from my wickedness and turn and listen to God. That's what it says in verse 22 to 23. So if you look here, you notice that 22 to 26 kind of like expand what it means to repent and to turn to God. So in verse 22 it says, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Now, you notice it says there very clearly in verse 22, anyone who wants to be among God's people must listen to everything Jesus tells you. But the funny thing is actually, many people treat verse 21 as saying, well, you must listen to some things that He tells you. You know, it's interesting you meet some people and they'll say things to you like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know, you know, I know God says this, but you know, I'm living in the real world at the moment. right? This is the real world I'm living in. And you know, the real world demands that I have to live this way even though I know this is what God tells me to do. Even though I know this is what Jesus tells me to do. But that's not what this passage says. You repent of your wicked ways, and you turn to God and listen to everything the Lord Jesus tells you. If you do not listen to everything Jesus tells you, then it says very clearly as well in verse 23, you'll be cut off from the people of God. See, God here, in many ways, is doing a miracle even greater than the miracle of making the lame crippled man walk. I remember back, or well, you won't remember back, but in in the first volume, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus says, which is harder to do? To forgive this man of his sins, or to make him walk again? And this man hadn't walked for 38 years, right? And this man was 40 years old, so it's only two years difference. Right? So which is harder? Which is the greater miracle? Make this man walk Bring forgiveness to people who had sinned against God. God is here doing a greater miracle by offering his people forgiveness, restoration, refreshment. Now, obviously, we are not Jews and, you know, we weren't there when Jesus was killed, but in, in the same way, we are in the same boat as the original hearers of Peter. We too, unless we repent and turn to God, we will not be among God's people and we will not be saved. I remember when I was working as an accountant before uh, in my one one of my old bosses, when I was working HP, he sat us down one day and he told us, you know, I don't like mistakes. He said, there are two types of mistakes I don't like. One is, I don't like people making repeated mistakes And I don't like big mistakes. And I also think that's every mistake you can make, right? Because, you know, there's only big mistakes or repeated mistakes. I mean, that means you don't like mistakes, right? And, uh, well, that's the reality of life, isn't it? I mean, which boss kind of like forgives you repeated mistakes and big mistakes? I mean, in the working world we we live in, you make too many mistakes or you make one really big boo-boo, you're out, right? But here, I mean, it's amazing that that God would forgive people who would kill an innocent man. Not just an innocent man, kill the holy and righteous one, his son. Kill the author of life. Let go and acquit a murderer in his place. And yet he gives them a second chance. God says, all of us are given the second chance. But we need to we need to do the right thing. We need to repent and turn to God and listen to everything that Jesus says. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see the two miracles in view here. The one was the healing of the crippled man who had been crippled for 40 years from birth but the greater miracle which is the offering of sins to be completely erased and wiped out, never to be seen again. We pray for ourselves that as we too receive the offer of forgiveness, of refreshment, of restoration, that we would take your words seriously, that we need to repent, to turn back to you, and to listen to everything that Jesus says. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.